Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. I am Betul Hatipolu, Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and Medical Director for Diabetes and Obesity Center at University Hospital. We welcome Dr. Leslie Cho to our program today. Dr. Cho is a Professor of Medicine at Lerner Medical School of Case Western and Section Head of Preventive Cardiology and Rehabilitation at the Cleveland Clinic. She is also a lead author for the updated recommendations for cardiovascular disease in women, published in 2020 by the Journal of American College of Cardiology. Thank you, Leslie, for joining us today. Oh, Batul, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Heart disease remains to be number one killer in women, and for a long time, the mortality was higher than in men. There are unique gender differences, but before we dive into details, can we perhaps review the traditional risk factors that affect both genders and learn if we approach the therapy the same way? I think it's good to start perhaps with hypertension as it has been a center of attention in many institutions for population health initiatives. What would you say, can you provide a little guidance on sex-specific differences, perhaps in the management or treatment of hypertension, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, hypertension is a silent killer. 50% of Americans over the age of 50 start getting hypertension. And unfortunately, hypertension is underdiagnosed and undertreated. It's a very potent risk factor in certain ethnicity, for example, African-Americans and Asians, it's a very potent risk factor for stroke. It's important regardless of whether you're a man or a woman that you control your blood pressure. The interesting thing about the sex differences is, is that for women, they are incredibly sensitive to salt. And so if you can make that dietary changes, it's really important. The other sort of interesting thing is, is after menopause, because of all the sort of menopausal changes in body composition, as well as your arterial compliance, probably, there is a steep rise in hypertension. We will talk about preeclampsia and all of those things later, but hypertension for women really tends to skyrocket in their 50s. Thanks, sister, for reminding us our age. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the beautiful thing about gaining wisdom and also is that you gain hypertension, too. (laughs) And it's important to be mindful about the type of food we eat. Incredibly important also is stress on the blood pressure. I think the important thing to remember is that if you have osteoporosis, and I know a lot of endocrinologists treat osteoporosis, Thiazide diuretics may actually be the better agent for hypertension control because it can help the bones too. This is a great tip. Thank you, Leslie. This is wonderful. As you know, the diabetes is an epidemic. And as endocrinologists, we have plenty of them in our clinics and we take care of them. And I know that you sometimes talk about diabetes and some differences between men and women, especially when it comes to cardiovascular risk factors. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
Diabetes really is a horrible disease and it is an epidemic, as you say, and we need more endocrinologists, God bless. <laughs> Diabetes eliminates the 10-year gender gap between men and women. And traditionally, women get heart disease 10 years after men in their 60s, whereas men get it in their 50s and 60s, women get it in their 60s and 70s. Diabetes eliminates that gender gap and women end up having heart disease in their 50s and 60s. The unfortunate thing about diabetes and women is that if you look at the Stockholm data, if you look at other epidemiological data, women with diabetes end up having heart failure and they actually have worse outcomes. They have threefold higher rates of major adverse cardiac events compared to the male counterpart. So it's really important to control diabetes in women and, and diabetes in women. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of people think diabetes is a benign disorder. I don't know why they think that, but it is not a benign disorder, especially in women. It's important to have aggressive control. And it's important because that increases the heart failure risk in women, which is a, a pretty horrible way to have a cardiovascular disease manifestation. Such a great, important point, especially nowadays that we have those new agents that we are trying to use and have our colleagues use more with effect to cardiovascular and congestive heart failure. So it's, it's important to remember this point that we don't always actually remember as an endocrinologist. So this brings it to lipids, don't you think so, Leslie? Lipids, which is extremely important when it comes to treat, especially our patients with diabetes. What I think challenges us in our practice is maybe not the straightforward patient that you know needs the medication, but all these others in gray zone, how do you decide and how aggressive to be or what to use in, especially in women with increased cardiovascular risk. I mean, I agree with you. It is a very difficult thing. And for whatever reason, we live in an era where people have very visceral reaction to statins and people have a very visceral reaction to medication. I think it's important to think about a lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease in our patients. And I know that as a busy clinician, we often sometimes treat numbers, but it's important to think about lifetime risk and how to adequately assess lifetime risk. I think there's an ACC, ASCBD risk score, which I think is a very good risk score. I think using calcium score to risk modify in women is actually very valid and good. I think using novel risk markers like lipoprotein little a, which has a very good epidemiological Mendelian randomization genetic data behind it is good. And also using things like ultrasensitivity CRP. I think the other thing that's important is I know endocrinologists do a good job better than uh, cardiologists, but to get patients at goal, you know, AACE has for years been really a thought leader in having aggressive LDL control, less than 55 for diabetics. You know, cardiologists are just sort of coming around to that. The European guidelines in 2021 really makes mention of that 55, which the AACE has for years advocated, which I think is very wise. Thank you. 
And aspirin is back on the news again. I just had a patient who asked me what to do with his aspirin. Um, and I know throughout the years, we saw changes in aspirin recommendations on and off. And what do you do currently for the women, uh, female patients that you see high risk cardiovascular for primary prevention? I mean, as you say, for secondary prevention, there is no question, of course, they should be on aspirin. For primary prevention, I think it's important to think about bleeding risk and then weigh that to the ischemic benefit. So we tend to think of calcium scores. So if your calcium score is high, you should be on aspirin because it's a CAD equivalent. If you have risk factors that are not well controlled, so even the ACC, AHA make that recommendation. So if you have blood pressure that's not well controlled, your diabetes is not well controlled, your cholesterol is not well controlled, you should be on aspirin. If you have good control of all of those things and you are elderly, if you are over the age of 75 or 70 even, but with the higher bleeding risk, I think it makes sense to be mindful about the aspirin therapy. But for people whose risks are not well controlled, I think it's really important that we still continue to give them aspirin if their bleeding risk is low. Thank you. And then there are times in a woman's life, which is very different than men, right? And those times, one of them, we always see as, as a very happy time. We don't always think about possible negative effect of pregnancy in women's health. But I know that we should be aware of some risks during pregnancy and perhaps even following it after. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that we are learning a lot about is the adverse pregnancy outcomes and its dramatic impact on cardiovascular disease. So if you've had preeclampsia, if you had gestational diabetes, if you were diagnosed with hypertension during pregnancy, if you had uh, premature delivery, all of those things increase your risk for having cardiovascular disease later on in life. Preeclampsia increases your risk for having hypertension by three to five fold, if you look at some studies, which is astounding. Gestational diabetes is also a, a very potent risk factor. And so I think what that, you know, it's like a stress test for the body. You just get it at a younger age. And so one of the things that we've done at the Cleveland Clinic is, is that if you have preeclampsia, if you have hypertension during pregnancy or gestational diabetes, you come to preventive cardiology and you get a once over, but we actually teach you how to eat, how to exercise, how to sort of change your lifestyle because it is such a potent risk factor. I think adverse events during pregnancy has been something that has continued to be studied very aggressively. There is some basic biological principle that's associated with it. But I think it's going to end up being a very potent risk factor for women. Amazing. Thank you. And that brings us to the other part of the women's reproductive time, which is the pause, the menopause. <laughs> <laughs> so... Premature menopause 
as well as I would love to hear your current practice if uh, more mature women in menopause is asking us about hormone replacement. Can you share your wisdom? You are an expert in this, but I'm going to just give my cardiovascular sense. I think the average menopause is supposed to be somewhere around 50 to 52. And if you have menopause prior to that, whether it's natural or surgical or chemical, that definitely increases your risk. Obviously, people with menopause before the age of 40 actually have a very great risk. There has been multiple guidelines from the all the way from ACOG, which is American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, all the way to AACE, the Endocrine Society, the North American Menopause Society, and the US Task Force, where they have all recommended treatment for menopausal symptoms based on risk. And so if your risk of breast cancer, uterine cancer is low, then obviously treating them with uh, hormone replacement therapy or hormone therapy, I think is reasonable. I think most societies will agree that lowest dose for shortest period of time, based on the timing hypothesis, that's gained wide acceptance. As you know, the HERS, which is the hormone replacement trial and secondary prevention, women with cardiovascular disease showed an adverse event rate with hormone replacement therapy. And the primary prevention trial, which is the Women's Health Initiative, again, showed worse outcomes on hormone replacement therapy. You can speak to this better than me. But as you know, they took women 10 years post-menopause, older women, and gave them hormones, which we know now that's not a good thing. So if you were to take women just going into menopause or within less than 10 years of menopause, that being on hormone replacement therapy is maybe beneficial for very early menopausal women, but may not be harmful. No society recommends hormone replacement therapy as for prevention of heart disease. But I think most societies will agree that for menopausal symptoms in low risk patients, I think the risk is well within the acceptable range. The question comes what to do for women who have cardiovascular disease, who are going through menopause, and they're suffering with hot flashes, or they're suffering with general urinary symptoms, what do you do for that? And I think that the data shows that for very high risk women, even the patch may not be ideal, but the cream base, the vaginal cream base may be an acceptable form. I think for moderate risk women, the patch, the risk profile is low and the benefit is good. And so I think it really is a case where we talk and think about shared decision-making. This is a time when a cardiologist and endocrinologist and maybe OBGYN, we all sort of think about patients' quality of life, weigh the risk and benefits of starting a therapy. This is wonderful. I know my colleagues in audience probably are very happy to hear what you are telling us about our women who comes to us very often with low, poor quality of life from estrogen deficiency. You know, when I was working with you, we saw many referrals from rheumatology for autoimmune disease and cardiovascular risk management, which is not very well known by the rest of many practitioners. So I would love to talk a little bit about the autoimmune disease, the risk factor, especially in women. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when we think of autoimmune disease, we think of autoimmune disease as gender neutral, but it really is not gender neutral because 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. It is truly a female phenomenon. It's 80% of the patient population with autoimmune disease are women. If you have rheumatoid arthritis, if you have lupus, you have an increased risk for having heart attack and stroke three to five fold above your counterpart, which is astounding. If you think about that risk, it's astounding. If you have recurrent flares, if you have recurrent flares, that even increases your risk even further. There is some data that says that if you have recurrent risk, your LDL should be less than 55 because it is a risk that's similar to a cardiovascular risk. And it kind of makes sense because it's the whole body's inflamed. And, you know, we know that atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease at baseline. So I think that makes sense. I think the problem with people with autoimmune disease is they're already on so many medicines. They're already feeling so awful that to put them yet on another medicine to control their cholesterol, they're like, what the heck is this? I don't really want to (laughs) eat this, you know? But what they die of is cardiovascular disease. That's what they die of. And I think to, again, think about lifetime risk, it becomes very critical. I think this is where shared decision-making becomes absolutely critical. You know, I've been a doctor and you and I have talked about this for a long time, but you can tell a patient something, but if they don't buy into it, there's no point. There's just no point. You're absolutely right. They will never follow through. They have to buy into it. They have to be a partner when they make the decision. Yeah, That's so true. Our time together is coming close to an end. I want to end it by asking you about the interaction between cardiovascular disease and psychosocial issues. You know, as a caregiver to many, Women usually will take care of their needs the last and nurturing themselves won't be their priority many times. And if we review this and remind our audience how important this is so that they, even for themselves, they are aware and they will take care of themselves You've taught me so much over the years about, you know, the importance of psychosocial issues. And it's totally true. I think that we think of our organs separately. We think of like heart separately, the pancreas separately, but I mean, they're all connected. And what we know from a huge epidemiological data is, is that cardiovascular disease, morbidity and mortality is increased anywhere to one to threefold with depression PTSD, its impact is really no less than that of traditional risk factors. And that makes sense because if you're depressed, you're going to eat badly, you're not going to take care of yourself, you're not going to exercise, you're going to smoke, you're going to try to medicate yourself with alcohol or some other drugs. And the important thing to also remember is that psychosocial issues are much more common in women than men, approximately twofold more common. Major depression is more common in women. The lifetime risk of major depression is 20% in women. There is very good data about harassment and discrimination and burnout increasing your risk. And its impact on women for cardiovascular metabolic risk is profound. 
I think recognizing that psychosocial issue, the mental health issue is truly important. I always think about one of my medical school professor, he always said, yes, you can become an endocrinologist or a nephrologist. But all of us at the baseline are psychologists and psychiatrists. <laughs> so so I'm a psychocardiologist. I guess. <laughs> but I think it's really important. And I think that as I get older, I think what brings home to me about taking care of patients, it's really a partnership. I think you can't give someone medicine and think you're doing good until you know about patient and you know where he lives and what he eats and things like that and his psychosocial and his social surroundings. It's really important to be cognizant of the whole patient. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you so much for sharing with us your knowledge, your experience, and your wisdom. We appreciate it. Otto, it was a pleasure, as always, to be with you. And I thank you for your leadership throughout the years and for all your teaching me and the group in the times that we've shared. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.